0: The following podcast is sponsor content from Esquire Network. Do you need me? Yeah. What, do you got a
1: pressing appointment?
2: What, do you need me to hold your hand
1: or something?
3: What I'm, f- I'm, I'm talking about what I bring to the table. Come and Clean is brought to you by Spotless, premiering November 14th at 10 on Esquire Network. I'm Josh Zepps, host of HuffPost Live and the hashtag WeThePeopleLive podcast. And that clip you just heard is from one of many intense scenes in Spotless. Spotless is a show not only about blood and guts, but about life and death and survival and humanity. It's one of the latest dark TV dramas to bring deep character development and ambitious storytelling and uh, remarkable darkness to the small screen. It's, uh, it's part of a, a fairly new sort of existential style of dramatic television that puts relatable characters in extreme circumstances and raises questions about society, what being human means. And that show inspired us to go behind the scenes and to learn how dark, dramatic TV in this new golden age of television that everyone's talking about gets produced and developed. We wanted to find out who was creating this specific mood and making the decisions that haunt viewers. So I tracked down some of the genre's most creative minds. What you're hearing now is the opening scene of Spotless. A boy sees his mother in bed with a man. The man sees the boy, and the boy is chased out into the snow. He gets caught, and hit repeatedly, and then the man gets stabbed in the back of the head with a pickaxe. I spoke to the show's creator and writer, Ed McCarty, and I started by asking him why he wanted to open the show that way.
2: We actually debated long and hard about how much we show up front because what the two brothers did... Uh, which you see in the opening, is um, is the context for everything that's happened. Uh, and it's the you kind know, of genesis moment for everything that happens to them for the rest of their lives. So we debated for a long, long time, back and forward, back and forward, about how much we show of that and when we show it. And actually, we decided that we couldn't play God and shouldn't play God about kind of drip-feeding the, the backstory, if you like, of the context for who these guys are. So, we decided to show them the kind of genesis moment for everything for the whole show, right here up front.
3: Yeah, well, then is it primarily a character driven decision or is it a plot driven decision or, or stylistic, character. you know? It's character.
2: It's always character, first, last, and always a character driven show. There's a whole backstory as to who is doing what, to whom, uh, what the motivation for that is, what the boys, why the boys act in the way that they do, and why they, why, they, why they kill this guy. We had that plotted out as to where we might reveal elements of that across all ten episodes. And a very hard and fast rule came into play. And In fact, a lot of the backstory ended up not being used because I kind of insisted that it could only be used when it would be relevant and in the mind of the character in the present day.
3: Well, this is probably a difficult question to, to answer, but what is your creative process like? Where does, where, where does an idea begin and how do you flesh it out?
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty easy. Any of us could read the newspaper or read a magazine article or something and put a, a fascinating murder investigation or a crime or, you know, any point of interest really for us. We could all do that and put a story together with a beginning, middle, and end. Where something kind of lights my fire, an, an idea lights my fire as a writer, or is when you care about the characters. If a man loses his shoe, I don't care about it. If a man that I love loses his shoe, then I do care about it. And then if you have the story to, uh, any points of story to go with that character, then you then boil it down to the things that have to happen, not the things that you would like to happen, not the things that you, um, which enable you to play God. And if you can write down some things that must happen, then chances are you're on to a decent story. You know, the, the world doesn't need more crap TV, the world needs, you know, more challenging, provocative, thoughtful TV.
3: And once you've got that story, once you've got the idea of basically what it what it is that you fundamentally want to do, how do you then surround yourself with the people who are capable of pulling that off and how do you get them all onto the same page and and inject your take your vision out of your head, inject it into theirs and, and get everyone working collaboratively?
2: Hopefully um, you surround yourself with people who can bring things to it that you can imagine and, and who can enhance it beyond what you'd hoped because I think if you you can teach structure, you can teach story, you can, or you can come to an agreement on the shape of things. But if someone doesn't have a spark about them, or if they don't have a good ear for dialogue, then then
3: you're up against it. Who manages the people who are supposedly less important on a shoot than the writers and actors are? So that so things as distant as composing or uh, affects people and so on. And like, how do you how do you create a collaborative community that includes all of the tiny tiny component parts?
2: I think if a writer or a showrunner or a producer even gets involved in the nitty-gritty of, in the detail of music and where it lands and where you know, which verse of a song we should come in on, so of course you can have an opinion, but I think you have to let the experts do their jobs. You hire very, very talented people because they're better than you. You're up shit creek if you hire great people and then try to tell them what to do.
3: What sort of research did you do with crime scene cleaners?
2: My co-creator um, was, a, was a woman called Corinne Marin, and the idea for the show uh, way back, if you like, was actually Corinne's, and Corinne was a CSI staffer for a decade. We did our research uh, uh, quite thoroughly. So every, everything that happens on our show could happen.
3: So do you now know how to clean up brain matter?
2: I do. Brain, brain matter does have uh, the texture of plaster of Paris, so basically I'd leave it to dry and it'll, it'll crumble to powder. <laughs> yeah that's no good problem. to
3: know. Well, I've learned a couple of things here today, Ed. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for speaking with us. Good to talk to you
2: Oh absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much.
3: If you're producing a TV show that includes dangerous or horrifying moments, then obviously those moments need to feel intensely real in order to succeed. So I tracked down the legendary special effects guy, Dave H. Watkins. Uh, he worked on Dexter, as well as on movies like Alien and Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Take a listen. Can you just start by giving me an impression of how you got into the field?
4: It was my first job after I left school because my father knew who was also in the industry, but he knew a special effects man called Les Bowie. And I think the first thing I was involved with was uh, Kubrick's 2001.
3: It's a pretty good way to, to start your curriculum vitae, uh, your resume right there with 2001. What, uh, what exactly were you doing on, on that film? Well, I was
4: uh, what's affectionately known as a gopher go for this and go for that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, and at what point did this uh, did you actually start to have some responsibility t- that, that made you feel like what you were doing was a craft?
4: Well, actually, it was um, everything I was told not to do as a child, only now they're <laughs> paying me. Because letting go with explosives and big fire brands and um, all of the sort of things that were definitely not in my tool bag when I was a child. And, you know, obviously I was taught responsibly how to handle these things with all the safety parameters that go with it, but my God, was it fun.
3: So when you get hired on a project, what happens? Uh, A director comes to you, you receive a script, and what's the process of, of going from whatever the writer has dreamt up to making it a reality?
4: They would call me and we would discuss the film and then they would send me a script if we agreed and I would break the script down uh, into the effect side of things.
3: Is it always immediately clear to you what's an effect and what's not?
4: Oh yeah, pretty much, but not like most people. They'd say, you know, the fire burning in the hearth. Well, that's a gag, that's an effect, and Mm. you have to figure out how to do it. If the director wants control over it, then you turn it into a, a propane gas rig that you can adjust the height of the flames on or turn it on and off.
3: How does TV differ from movies?
4: Uh, not a lot, really. I mean, you're pretty much in the same ballpark. I mean, there are no shortcuts, but TV's much faster, uh, especially on shows like Dexter where they would dream stuff up and you'd have to figure it out and make it work, you know, within 24
3: hours. You mentioned Dexter. That's one of the... It was one of the most deliciously dark shows on TV. Did Does that change anything for your job?
4: Well, not really, no, it's it's all part and parcel of the job, because there is no emotion to the job. It, it's a mechanical job where you take on what they want to see, whether it be blood, whether it be bullet hits, whether it be fire or rain. you're still under the guise of an effects man doing the effects that are seen on the screen.
3: And have things changed much in the in the time that you've been working in the industry?
4: Oh, blimey, yeah. I mean, the directors forget that just because it's digital, it doesn't mean it wasn't done before, you know, and it's cheaper to do it mechanically with the actors in the frame than it is to go through the elaborate process of digital work.
3: What are you looking for in terms of collaboration with the creators of a show or a film, in terms of their communicating with you about what what it is that they want and their receptiveness to whatever feedback you've got about about how to do it?
4: A lot of times I will surprise them with the simplicity of how things can be done. I mean, once on Dexter, the designer came to me and he was pulling his hair out because they wanted this um, airport ticket machine, you know, where you put your ticket in and it spits it out the other side. That was supposed to be, you know, part and parcel of the story as Dexter left for Paris. You know, they showed it to me, I can you not rent one? And they said, no, it's $75,000 to rent one. I said, well, then why don't you get a little person and build your box as to what you want to do, have him take the ticket from one side and shove it up the other side. I said, it was good enough for George Lucas.
3: Did they do it? <laughs>
4: That's exactly what we did, yeah.
3: Sometimes the simplest solutions are the best. One of the other movies that you worked on was, uh, was Alien, of course, which has one of the most iconic scenes uh, in movie history, the, uh, the alien bursting out of the chest of, of, of a character. Was that a, a scene that you worked on?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. We worked it all out as to how we were going to do it, which was to have John Hurt lay at an angle, and we'll just butt the set piece up to his neck with um, a prosthetic makeup piece, and then our mechanical rig will lay flat on the table, which was all air-operated with blood rings around the whole, you know, on the dummy's chest. But of course, Ridley Scott was very ingenious in... He wouldn't let the actors onto the set to see what we were doing. So when the actors came on, they thought that that it was John Hurt uh, laying on the table. And when we hit the blood pumps and the ram to force this thing through the T-shirt, and the blood went everywhere, and part of it actually hit Veronica Cartwright straight in the face. And she went into hysterics. She fell over backwards off of the couch and she was a chocolate mess. She had to go home.
3: Wait, did the actors not know what scene they were shooting or had they not read that scene?
4: Well, they knew that something was going to happen, but nobody told them exactly what. <laughs>
3: uh, do you? Can you think of anything else on Dexter? There, Dexter had so many uh, sort of huge scenes of... Uh, of I'm trying to, trying to pinpoint any particular example of, of gore, but there are so many that come to mind. Are there any that pop into your head as being particularly... Uh, either audacious to pull off or or, sim- or, or beautiful in their simplicity? Uh, Michael,
4: he really enjoyed a lot of the effects we did, except some of the fire gags. Some of the fire gags were really tight, and uh, one of his ladies, she was a firebug, and so everything she did was arsonic. We got into a few situations where, you know, I had to pull the plug because everybody, especially the director, was getting a bit ambitious as to what we could do with live fire sequences on stage.
3: Have you ever had a creative disagreement with a director or any kind of disagreement with a director that was, that was so profound that you, it left a bad taste in your mouth?
4: Well, I once had a, uh, an incident with Steven Spielberg where he was really involved in the scene. I wanted to go through the safety instructions with Harrison as he ran down the, the walkway, um, you know, in the Temple of Doom. And I had bullet hits all over the place and I had to show Harrison where they were and he thought I was taking too much time and, and then he started yelling at me and then he got a bit profound. So I took my key out of the firing box and I walked off the stage and I wouldn't come back until he apologised.
3: <laughs> How do you feel about that?
4: But um, the first AD came to me when I was sitting outside and said, I'm going to lose the day unless you come back. He said, "Will you do it for me. I said, well, that's hitting below the belt, but okay." So I walked back in, walked up the stairs up to the gantry, walked past Stephen, um, walked up to Harrison, explained what I was going to do and how we were going to do it. Stephen started up again, and Harrison, because he's much taller than me, he leaned over my shoulder and said, just a second, Stephen, we're discussing safety. After that, you know, everything went as sweet as a nut, got it all in the first take. And I left the rest of my crew to um, de-rig that. And on the way down the staircase, Stephen leaned over and he shouted my name. He said, Dave Watkins? I said, yes. He said, I'm sorry, you were right. <laughs> so I said, well, that's very big of you, Stephen, and I appreciate it, thank you. And he's never, ever questioned me <laughs> on safety again.
3: David, uh, lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time.
4: Thank you. Bye.
3: The mastery of on-set special effects is obviously remarkable, but how does the whole show come together in post-production? It's editors who make it happen, who allow a show to breathe, who create its pacing. So I spoke to Lewis Choffey, who was an editor on Dexter.
1: It's a huge challenge. It's a multidimensional puzzle. What I enjoyed about doing it is I could just do that and not think about
3: anything else. What do you mean that it's a multi-dimensional puzzle?
1: You have sight, sound, hearing, I guess, uh, multi-sensory. It's manipulating images, sounds, to create a desired effect or a way to tell a story. What we do is we try and distill everything into its most potent form, and try and just keep working away and working away and looking at all the options and seeing if there's more concise
3: and compelling way to tell the story. Dexter was such a dark show. Is it is it at all different working on a drama that's dark than something that's sunny, or are you bringing the same tools to the table?
1: You're bringing pretty much the same tools to the table. There's just more at stake. It's, it's about life and death. Dexter revealed himself in his voiceover. His interaction with people is a facade that he would put up. We only saw the true Dexter in his voiceover and in the kill rooms where he revealed what he was and who he was. It can be difficult to channel... Some of the darker scenes, I think, you know, there's one scene in, in particular when Dexter is with this character Lumen and they have one of the, the people that abused raped her on the table and they share a kill and that was one of the darkest things I've ever worked on. The way it was written, Dexter is describing that this is a release, you know, for him. And the way it was played, you, you know, you believe it.
3: Part of what made Dexter work so well as a show was the, the sense that you're actually perceiving the world through Dexter's eyes. And as you say, the voiceover always re- keeps reminding you of that, that what you're looking at on the outside is just a facade. How does that influence the way that you edit the show?
1: The entire show is edited through Dexter's point of view. The world doesn't exist, or the Dexter world didn't exist without Dexter being in it. That creates tough choices. Some of the other actors would be doing great things, but if it wasn't in Dexter's point of view, we couldn't really show it.
3: Is it different now working on The Affair? What are the similarities and differences?
1: Well, you know, the similarities between uh, Dexter and The Affair is, you know, The Affair is also told very specifically through people's points of view. The first season one was all about Allison's point of view and Noah's point of view. The world literally does not exist without that character in
3: it. Is there something in particular that appeals to you about dark material or is this, is this accidental?
1: Dexter, I came on in season two. I was on from season two to the end. And uh, when I first uh, heard about the show, my wife loved it. She watched it on Showtime and said, oh, man, this show is fantastic. You should watch it. I didn't want to watch it because I had been so disturbed by a book that James Ellroy had written called Silent Terror. And it was really, really creepy. After reading that, I had no desire to be involved with serial killers, serial killers at all, or a show about that. And then when I found out they were looking for an editor, I, uh, I started watching it, and it was just compelling. It, uh, he's kind of like a, a wooden, like a, a Pinocchio type. He's a, he just wants to feel what we feel. You know, he just wants to be normal.
3: I think we all have a little bit of Dexter in us, right? We all feel like like everyone else was somehow taught at some class that we accidentally missed how to be alive and how to, and how to do things and how to manage life and how to manage the world. And uh, we're all just uh, we're afraid that we're going to get found out at some point and people are going to realize that we don't belong. Yeah.
1: Um... You said it so well, I'm not sure if I've got anything to add to that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> sure. Can you just talk about the process of how a director imparts um, to you what they want from you and how they manage teams and collaborate? Are there, are there are there interesting differences between the way that different directors do it? What works?
1: What I do is I'm whoever you need me to be. Uh, I do whatever works. The director I'm working with right now, Adam Wingard, I'm the first editor he's ever worked with. He's edited all of his own stuff. The way I worked with him was that I would put my cut together, and then for the director's cut, he would edit on the show. You know, not all of it. He'd do, like, a, a pass-through. That's his way of getting to know the footage. Other directors, you know, guys like John Dahl, I, they would come in and give me notes, and they'd tell me what's working, what's not. And then I'd work on that, and then uh, they would come in and review whatever changes we have I've made with them. And uh, we keep doing that until they're happy with it. And then once I'm happy with the director, we usually work with the producers and show them, and they'll have some usually pretty helpful notes. And then we go to the studio after that, and they'll usually have some pretty helpful notes. Hopefully, a good, it's a good show at that point. We hear, it's a joke I always tell my producers. Like, look, the night the show airs at my house, I'm going to play a DVD of my cut. Of the show, Um, but you know, if you can't argue your point successfully, then you know it's just not meant to be.
3: Obviously, you know you don't want it to be gratuitously gory, but you also want to make sure that it's uh, horrifying. (laughs) So, like, is there is it? Do you ever have any internal tension between those two?
1: Yeah, I, I try and make it. It's it sounds corny, and tr- but I, I try and make it serve serve whatever the purpose of the scene is. On Dexter, we never try to go for the top with any of the violence or any of the blood, because we wanted to make the show. I guess what's the word? I'm trying to figure out a word. How do you say classy?
3: <laughs> sure, you can say, I, you can say classy. Yeah,
1: we didn't want to be gratuitous. We didn't want to be a slasher. We, you know, we wanted we wanted the show to be taken seriously.
3: Uh, Lewis, that's great.
1: Thank you, guys. I had a great time and looking forward to hearing this.
3: One production element that can really take a dramatic scene to the next level is, of course, music. Dave Porter is the composer of shows like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Take a listen as he gives us a sense of how music gives a show texture and shape. Off the bat, how did you get started? Started playing piano at
5: age five, was very involved in performing classical music uh, as a young person. Got into the technology that was coming around in the 80s in terms of making music uh, when I was a teenager, and that kind of sparked me into making my own music. But also, I was always interested in TV and film scores.
3: Was there any TV or film score that really blew your mind and you got the idea that it would be a cool job? (laughs) I
5: mean, I think about, um, you know, Twin Peaks and David Lynch has always been so good at using music and sound. Michael Mann's Miami Vice was enormous in the 1980s in terms of how it changed everyone's viewpoint on how you could use music.
3: You can't get more different sounding scores than Twin Peaks and Miami Vice, both sort of iconic but in totally different ways. That's right, and so very different, but but uh, perfectly appropriate in each case, I think. On the point of music being appropriate, one of the things that's really annoying is when is when music is too heavy-handed or emotionally manipulative. And so, on that question, a, do you agree that it is? And b, why does that happen? Do you want to throw anyone under the bus?
5: <laughs> that's a, a multifaceted question. In broad strokes, yes, of course, I agree. I mean, I think that. Music is most powerful in film and TV uh, when it's able to be focused on helping the story. It becomes, a, a hopefully, its own character. Where music is less effective is when it's called upon to direct the audience t- to some sort of preconceived result, or it's needed to make an experience of watching a TV or, or a film better because some other aspect of the, of the creation process uh, didn't go well or wasn't believable. But I also think that the quality of television as a whole has increased enormously. Uh, and what, what that does is it allows composers to spend less time writing
3: music um, that uh, is covering up bad acting. Can you take me through the process of when you get approached for a new project and and where it goes from there?
5: You know, I think when you're starting off on a new project, it takes time uh, and an awful lot of discussion on Breaking Bad many, many years ago now. You know, first thing we did is just talk. We just talked a lot about what we hope to achieve with the music, what sort of influences in the story might play a role in the music. You know, is this something you're working on happening in current day? Is it very modern or does it have some sort of specific time period it's supposed to fit in? The background history of the characters involved. For example, uh, my score for Better Call Saul bases itself actually a lot more on where the character of Jimmy McGill comes from, which is sort of uh, more middle-of-America than it does New Mexico, where the show is actually set, whereas Breaking Bad, for example, does have some, uh, some nods to the Southwest. A lot of the sounds that I used uh, during my composing process for Breaking Bad started their lives as something that was a live recording. Uh, nearly everything in that show was processed to some degree uh, or another by the computer later on. Better Call Saul, on the, on the other hand, is a lot more live performance, and uh, while there are still synthesizers involved, there are fewer. It relies more on on live recordings and performances than Breaking Bad did.
3: Is working on a dark drama different? Do you prefer it? Well, I mean,
5: I, I do think that my music lends itself well to certainly dark or contemplative or
3: dramas that make you think. Have you had any blow-ups or just completely different visions for a score than someone else like the director had?
5: Uh, I mean, not that I'm going to talk about specifically, but there, there's no question. We are artistic folks trying to do artistic work. We all get into situations where the creative conversation uh, just isn't working. Uh, and that does happen. happens far less often than not. You know, that's where you kind of have to uh, look each other in the eye and say, hey, I've Enormous respect for everything about what you're doing, um, but we're just
3: not on the same path, and this
5: is the timing isn't right for
3: us. Are there any moments that you think were especially effective that you're super proud of? You know, One of the beauties of working on a show like Breaking Bad is that
5: they're always breaking the rules and throwing new challenges at you, so you're required to do things that you haven't done. I mean, we've never done... You know, this is where was, season four, was it the train heist? I can't even remember now. Four, the beginning of five. We'd certainly never done a sequence like that before um, in, in all the episodes we have done to date on Breaking Bad. So, so seeing it and knowing that I had this big block of eight or ten minutes uh, straight of, of action score was, uh, was, a, was very exciting. And I think you, as a composer, you get up for that because um, it's a chance to, to show your stuff and, and add something
3: to the story. Thanks for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. My next and final guest is Larry Cohen, writer of Borgia and a researcher on in-treatment. Larry gave us a vision of how writers and researchers start with a blank page and end up with something truly authentic.
0: Uh, yeah, I want, I, growing up, like I wanted to get into the film industry very, very badly. And uh, I went to school for film, um, sort of thinking about having some kind of feature career because that's where I was... That's where my head was at at the time. And by the time I finished school, I kind of started to see that things were shifting and there were more opportunities coming out of the television world. And the quality in television was totally shifting. And I think the collaboration was was a big part of it as well you know on a feature there's only one person at the top of the ship and then a television show everyone's working together.
3: I was just going to follow up on that in terms of what about the leadership of a showrunner though Uh, that obviously it is a collaborative process but some of the greatest shows are the ones with very strong showrunners who have a very clear uh, distinctive vision for precisely what they want the show to be.
0: Well I think that's what I learned once I got there. A good show takes a, a great writing staff and a and a really great vision, and then together you were able to create something.
3: Was part of the shift that appealed to you in TV the shift towards these darker characters?
0: I mean, look, I think once you got away from advertisers saying, you know, you couldn't, (laughs) we don't want to put advertising money behind people doing bad things, you know, it really opened up the space to do a lot of different things.
3: What was the trick to getting, ca- getting in the head of characters from a particular era, some of whom were modeled presumably off real people? Is that a more difficult enterprise or a more liberating enterprise than creating something from scratch?
0: I can't put it in either of those camps as much as I can say that in the case of Borgia, the truth it was always stranger than fiction. No matter what we did... And no matter how hard we try, as soon as we found what really happened, it was always more interesting. And that was really exciting to kind of always be able to push your push that research muscle a little further to find something that, that really happened. And so much of it was documented. It was like nothing I had done before, but the research has carried with me through everything I do so that finding the truth that you can turn into fiction allows you to have more confidence and, and find a... More relatable character to, for everyone.
3: Were you up late at night googling around about what was, about what had happened centuries ago, or did you have research staff who would come to you and go, "Oh my, look, we just found this crazy thing."
0: We, we all did the research, and I think doing the research yourself was always the best way to, to render the best scenes. So you just by the end of it, you'd have this huge folder of, you know, things that you want to incorporate. And in the case of Borgia, I mean, some of them were like terrible torture methods.
3: What does it say about those people? And how do you find empathy with characters when they're that bad?
0: You can't look at it through the lens of today. You have to look at it through the lens of when it was. It was the crossroads between sort of the dark age and the Enlightenment. So quickly they would just throw someone in the center of the square and make everyone watch them die. They were at the crossroads of humanity between, you know, being, being violent and being, being educated. The funniest part, though, is then when you do put it through the lens of today, there's just there's so many instances where you realize, well, you know, things like that still do happen today. People still do get beheaded. It's informative for where we came from. It's also informative to where we are today.
3: You're a writer and a director and a producer now, I guess you're wearing a lot of hats without being patronizing. What do you want to do? Like is show is show running a big a big ambition for you? Do you want to remain a writer? Are you interested in production or all of the above?
0: I think it's fun to to wear many hats, and I think the further you go in your career, the more you have to understand how every part of the process works. That's why I think I've worn those hats, is just to make sure I know what it's like to do all those different jobs so that if I'm working with someone else, I can work with them at the highest possible level. Larry, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. No, thank you so much for having me.
3: Thanks for listening to Coming Clean where we've tried to bring together some of the most important strands that bring to life a television show, a dark drama that can reflect on what it means to be human in the 21st century. Many thanks to our guests who've helped us do that. Larry Cohen, Lewis Choffey, Dave Porter, David Watkins and Ed McCarty. Coming Clean is brought to you by Spotless, premiering November 14th at 10 on Esquire Network. I'm Josh Sepps of HuffPost Live and hashtag
0: WeThePeopleLive. Thanks for listening.